Well, good morning. It is uh, great to be back with you this morning, and uh, it's good to now uh, look forward to being with you uh, in this next season, as long as in God's providence He sees fit for that to be the case. I look forward to walking with you during this, uh, during this time, serving you and serving alongside you. Um, I appreciate uh, McCartney's uh, allusion to the cooler weather that you apparently are experiencing right now. And I just want to commend you on your valiant effort at making it feel like fall. Uh, it's a valiant effort. I actually, one of the first things that I noticed driving around, I, I had, I, I, I put this on my Facebook page, I actually had no idea that there were this many fireplaces in people's homes this far south in Florida. That was brand news to me. So I, I appreciate the optimism. I really do. Um, but nevertheless, uh, it really is an honor and a privilege to be with you. I look forward to getting to know each and every one of you uh, during this time. This morning, we are going to embark on a sermon series uh, looking at the book of Genesis. Actually, the, the first 12 chapters or so, Um, and I'm going to say a little bit more about that in a moment, but first let me go ahead and read the scripture and then pray um, for this time. I'm actually, this is is my fault. I'm actually, I don't know if it's going to be on the screen or not. I don't know if if you have your Bibles, please open to Genesis 1. I'm only going to read the first two verses, uh, not three. So this is Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This is God's holy word. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do ask now that as we come to these words that were written literally thousands of years ago, Father, would you bring through your Spirit new life to them as we engage with them? At the end of the day, Jesus, you who is the one with words of eternal life is who we need to hear from. So I pray that we might hear from you, Jesus, right now. However, we have made our way in here this morning, whether we have come with great joy, whether we have come with a game face, because honestly, on the inside, we're not doing that well. We're just trying to hold things together. Father, wherever we are this morning, would you meet with us? And would you convince us it is no accident that you've seen fit that we would be here meeting with you with these words? We pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Genesis, the beginning. Why Genesis, John? (laughs) Why start a sermon series on Genesis? Well, first of all, I uh, as I thought about how my what kind of a sermon series do I want to begin with? I didn't want to repeat anything, um, any extended series that you've already been through, and so I I did a review of of some of the previous sermon series. I went online, I looked at some of the worship files there, and. 
Notice that you had, you had um, not actually had a sermon series in Genesis. That was the first thing. I, you had, you had I'd seen some things in the New Testament and the Gospels and the Epistles, seen some Psalms, but Genesis had not yet uh, been uh, preached through. So that was helpful. But furthermore, it's actually the context of the book of Genesis that I found to be very apropos to your particular place in time. You see, Genesis, as you probably know, is part of a collection of five books. It was, this is the Pentateuch, the beginning book, the first work, the first volume of the Pentateuch. And the first five books of the Bible were collectively given to God's Older Testament people as they were about to enter the land that God had promised to them. As you recall, God's people had been in bondage, oppressed, enslaved for over 400 years by the superpower of the day, the Egyptians. However, prior to those 400 years, God had made a promise to their ancestor, to Abraham, their forefather, promised to bless him and his descendants for the purpose that they might be a blessing to the nations of the earth. But as you can imagine, 400 years of bondage can take its toll on people's ability to hold on to those promises. 400 years is a long time. It's ordinarily a difficult thing for us as God's people to wait patiently on God's promises and to trust his faithfulness But 400 years is a whole other level. And so the Pentateuch, the Torah, these first five books, of which Genesis is the first, was written as a type of constitution for God's Older Testament people, as God is now making good on his promise to give his people a land where they might live out in community, before they're watching neighbors, what life looked like under the reign of Yahweh. Their commissioning by God, so to speak, their mission, as it were, is actually given in Exodus 19, the second book of this constitution. There God says, you yourselves have seen what I did how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you out of Egypt to myself. And now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, if you will keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, And a holy nation. Yahweh is bestowing an amazing promise and blessing on his people. God is telling his people, look, the whole earth is mine. (laughs) It's all mine. All the peoples are mine. But at the very same time, I am calling you to be my treasured possession And I am giving you a role to play and a calling. You will be a kingdom of priests. In other words, 
I want you, as you have your own priests that mediate me to you and you to me, I want you to be a kingdom of priests. I want you to be mediators to the rest of the nations. See, Israel was to be a community of people who served and lived out and mediated the knowledge of the one true God to all the other peoples of the world. That was their calling. God wasn't calling and sending them into a private, secluded commune somewhere, cut off from the rest of the world. No, in that day and age, the the land that is now under conflict, the land we call Palestine, was intentionally at the crossroads of all the major political and economic powers and players of the day. Caravans had to come right through that land, exchanging commerce, ideas, goods, You had the Egyptians, the powerful Egyptians in the south, Ethiopians even further south into Africa. You had the Hittites and the Assyrians to the north. You had the Babylonians all around the Fertile Crescent, the Mesopotamia region, all there having to pass through this area, this land. And so Genesis is the first volume that was given to these people who were at a place of new beginnings of sorts. It was a time, you can imagine, of considerable transition for these people. There were new wonderings, questions, uncertainties. What will it be like in this next season? What will survival look like? How will we continue to flourish without the leader that brought us this far? Remember, Moses was no longer going with them. These are things they're facing. But nevertheless, in the midst of all that uncertainty, God's people were reminded that they remained his treasured possession. He remained their God. And they were continued, they were called to continue and go in and be the people, be the community whereby their neighboring peoples would find blessing and even come to know the one true God themselves. Does any of that resonate? (laughs) Does any of that sound familiar? I would make the case it's actually not too dissimilar from where New City is right now. A new beginning of sorts. New wanderings. Uncertainty. How will things go? Questions about what comes next. And yet, And yet, your call as God's people remains in place. His faithfulness remains in place. New City remains to be, is called to be a faithful people, to be a blessing to Palm Bay. And doing all of that while constantly be reminding yourselves of God's faithfulness and his commitment to you. And that as Israel was, so now in Christ Jesus, you are his treasured possession. That is a foundational truth that is based on God's promise and oath and his faithful character. And not altered, cannot be altered by changing temporary or uncertain circumstances. And so God, to these people at this time, in those circumstances, found it important to remind them of where they have come from. In fact, where all things have come from. 
And he takes them all the way back to the very beginning of all material things, according to God himself, narrating the events from the moment the first atoms of matter were unleashed into a newly created physical world all the way up until their day was important to include at the very beginning of this constitution of this people. So here we go. (laughs) Here we go. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's a lot in one verse. (laughs) Just to be subtle, that's a lot. In Hebrew language, it's only seven words. And yet, has there been a more consequential, significant event in the history of the cosmos (laughs) than its creation? God created the heavens and the earth. This is the Hebrew way of saying the entire cosmos, all matter, the whole thing, everything. But notice what's missing right here at the very beginning. See, there's no introduction or apologetic defending who God is or that he even exists here. We are simply told of the first act in the history of the cosmos. God's existence is merely assumed. At the beginning of time and matter and life itself, God was. Now, although we will follow the text lead and not engage in extensive undertaking of apologetics, I do want to say just for now, if you are here this morning, possibly and not yet, a follower of Jesus. Still trying to figure out whether these things can be true. Perhaps you might have philosophical questions about God and how you can know he really exists or not. Let me say you're actually in a good place to be. This is a safe place to explore and ask difficult questions and wrestle with the claims of the Bible. However, if that's your story this morning, And you have decided that to believe in God requires a faith commitment that you're just not ready to make. May I humbly suggest, it's just possible, and in fact, it's actually likely, that you're already living life with a faith commitment. Let me explain. Back in Queens, where I pastored a church for almost 10 years, I hosted a regular gathering at a local Irish pub where I invited agnostics, atheists, theists to gather around and have a civil conversation on life and and weighty things. We called it Theology on Tap. And at the beginning, I told people I would be offering a thoughtful, respectful Christian response to the late anti-theist Christopher Hitchens' book, God is Not Great. We took it chapter by chapter. And then COVID came along, and we didn't meet for some time. But when I decided to reboot the group, I actually wanted to change the format a bit. See, there was a man who had started coming to that group pre-COVID, and someone who I actually got to be friends with, an anti-theist himself. (laughs) In fact, our families actually became close through the years, and we've actually shared some very special events and celebrations together since then. So I I reached out to him and I said, listen, I've got this idea of getting the band kind of back together. And I asked this time, would you co-lead this group 
with me. I told him I want to demonstrate to our neighbors, to Queens, that even in this cultural and political moment, people could actually maintain diametrically opposed beliefs and views about the weightiest matters of life and still engage with each other civilly and even with respect for each other. He loved the idea. He was all over. Except he added something. He said, John, he said, I need to tell you, I, I, I no longer consider myself an anti-theist. Okay? He said, I, I consider myself more of an agnostic now. Now, aside from ruining the marketing plans I had for this group as a civil dialogue between a theist and an anti-theist, I was curious by what he meant by that. So I asked him to define his terms. He said, John, he said, I don't believe that there is empirical scientific proof that supports either the existence or the non-existence of God. To which I replied... (laughs) Well, that's even worse for the marketing purposes because according to that definition, this group's going to be led by a pair of agnostics. (laughs) The truth is, there is not scientific empirical proof for the existence of God. However, it actually requires a faith commitment to believe that the only evidence that matters the only evidence that means anything and is germane to this conversation is scientific, empirical evidence. Why must it be that this world is self-contained? That's a faith commitment. And furthermore, how could you be absolutely convinced of that? You would have to have already made a faith commitment. Regardless, Genesis 1 is not interested in apologetics. The Old Testament people of God, you see, were not struggling with whether they believed a God existed or not. Their concerns were much more about which God was ultimately in charge and how did they fit in to his plan. You see, they were coming out of wandering in the wilderness for 40 years after being enslaved as a people for 400 years. And so Moses, the author, starts by simply reminding them, in the beginning, God, your God, the God you worship, that same God who rescued you from the hand of your oppressors, that God created everything. That's the God who created heaven and earth. And my friends, that would be a powerful, sustaining, steadying truth for a wandering people who are living in uncertain times. That your God is the one who started all things from the very beginning and continues to reign. That is a truth that is communicated not to be an apologetic weapon, but rather as a pastoral comfort for God's people. But then Moses immediately continues with some language that these wandering people of God would have clearly recognized and resonated with 
and which would have further solidified their ability to move forward in faith and hope in uncertain, uncertain times. Verse 2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Without form and void. The Hebrew actually rhymes. It's tohu vabohu. Functionless, empty, formless, unordered, void. The exact same language that's used elsewhere in the Old Testament to describe the conditions of the wilderness out of which these people had just come. Wilderness is a barren place. It's unordered. And that had been these people's experience. They had known it, known it up close and personal, being nomads, homeless, life of instability. But God was now bringing them out of that. And as he was doing so, he tells them, this is very similar to how all things actually began. I've done this before. Moses, it's as if Moses is telling God's people that when God starts in verse 3, let there be, there's some kind of stuff around already that God has already brought into existence. But that stuff was tohu vabuhu, without form and void. And that's what God begins to fashion in verse 3. Not that it was evil, just formless and purposeless and unordered. And furthermore, the word for deep in darkness was over the face of the deep. This is the abyss of the darkest, deepest part of a body of water you could possibly imagine. If you're a marine biologist, think of the Mariana Trench. It was a place that when thought about would arouse feelings of unease, unrest, and angst. And yet, God's spirit hovered even there, the darkest abyss. God's spirit is hovering there. Or better yet, as this language is used elsewhere, God's spirit brooded there like a mother bird over the nest of her eggs that were about to hatch. Something is about to happen. See, Moses is saying that God is able to bring order out of unorder. And much like a potter would do with the clay he was given to make something with, or like a farmer would do with unplowed, uncultivated land. Both of these would have been very familiar activities and images to the original audience of Genesis. (laughs) And so that's the very first thing. Right off the bat, we are told about the God of the Bible God the creator. This is the kind of God he is. The kind of God who is able to handle the chaos, the disorder, the void, the wilderness of this life and bring order and beauty out of it. In other words, God is willing, just like a potter, just like a farmer, to get his hands dirty in the soil, in the messiness and chaos of our lives and our humanity with the purpose of actually intentionally making and shaping something out of it that has life, that has worth, that has beauty. Close with this. A little over a year ago, yeah, a little over a year ago, 
uh, shortly after, at least in New York, we were starting to come to get back to somewhat normal life after COVID. I was having one of those, I'm really tired and I want to go to bed conversations with one of my three sons. At midnight, (laughs) about evil and the existence of God, you know, nothing really big or weighty. And he was genuinely struggling with some things that had just recently happened to him. And they were serious. He's making observations and he has questions about this world and puzzled about how, specifically in his circumstance, he was genuinely engaged in doing something really good for other people and something very, very tragic happened to him in the midst of that. And so he's struggling. He's asking very hard questions. He's almost in tears. He's wanting to know, how do we really know? How can we really know there's a point to all of this when life can just seem so random and disordered (laughs) and chaotic? It's my son. Did I mention this is happening at midnight? (laughs) And I paused took a deep breath, started praying inside. And at first I I offered simply, I told him, I said, you know, at at least, at least, I I just think it would be a better world if people continue to do, make the effort to do the right thing, even though bad things may still happen in the midst of that. I actually would rather live in that world than the alternative. That was my non-pastor, non-theological, bare-bottom, commonsensical answer. (laughs) Then I paused again, still praying. (laughs) And I just acknowledged to him how hard it must be, sitting where he is, having that realization about life, having those questions right now. And then I honestly offered him this. (laughs) I told him, I said, son, listen. I wasn't there at the beginning of the world in Genesis 1. (laughs) I wasn't there. No one was. And I can't scientifically, empirically prove to you that a good God with good reasons intentionally created everything. That does require a faith commitment on my behalf. I believe it's true, and I believe there's good evidence, just not empirical evidence. But I also said I honestly and humbly believe... (laughs) The reality is, I think it actually takes more faith to believe that somehow when there was absolutely nothing, not even the dark space and void that we imagine when we think of nothing, that somehow randomly and without any instigation from anything because nothing existed, that somehow atoms and matter simply appeared and put into motion a series of events that got us to where we are now. I said, I honestly do not have that much faith in what I have not physically observed. (laughs) To me, it makes more sense that there was a reason, that there was an instigator of it all, and that we are not simply caught up in a series of random events and processes, but that there is someone who is sovereign, who is good, who is intentional about his work, both in creation in providence, in his redemption, 
to the end of the age. That, to me, I believe. In fact, that's the claim actually being made in the first two verses of Genesis 1. That our God, with intention, brings and fashions order and beauty, ultimately, out of nothing, but also out of unrest and the void. And even though no human was around to be eyewitnesses of the events of Genesis 1, 1 and 2 with their very own eyes, there were plenty of witnesses when God physically entered into all of the messiness and wilderness of this life in and through his son, Jesus Christ, who the apostle John calls in his gospel the very word of God and further claims that in the beginning, that's how he starts his gospel, wanting us to remember this, In the beginning, this word, Jesus, was God. He was with God and he was God. And furthermore, that the word actually became flesh and in doing so, encompassed the very fullness of the light of God's glory and presence so that not even the darkest abyss, not even the darkest abyss of the brokenness, the evil, the injustice, the sin of this world could overcome him. Not even that, but rather at the cross, as we've already sung about in that great hymn, it is well, rather at the cross, he overcame it. (laughs) The light overcame the darkness. And that's the all-encompassing narrative of life that we are offered to embrace, to believe, to live out. Will we believe that? This morning, we believe that in this season, that God is absolutely at ease in getting into the messiness of our lives, even the transitional and uncertain times of our lives, to be present there, to hover and brood by his spirit, even to enter into it himself in the person of Jesus, in order to, in order to, very similar to the life of Joseph. (laughs) Though others may mean for evil, God means it for good. And he will work it out in his good timing according to his good purposes. That's what we're called to live and embrace on a daily basis. Even now, that God might continue as he overcomes the very brokenness, as he has overcome, if you were in faith in Christ, has overcome the very broken, the very sin in your life, the darkness in your life, but overcoming that with the greater plan to use you and me to see that spread out from us towards our neighbors around us, that others may come to see this God of the Bible, his son, Jesus Christ, the one who has overcome the darkness in this life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word. We thank you that it was in your kindness out of your grace to remind your people that the very God who began all things out of nothing is their God, that you are our God. The creator God is also our redeemer. Father, I pray that that might further penetrate our hearts, whether we've walked with you for a long time or More recently, Father, may we be further convinced that the God 
of the Bible is the God who does bring light, brings his light into this world, into this darkness, and overcomes it. You've done that at the cross, and you continue to do so. You continue to make things new, Jesus, until one day you will return. And our faith at that time will be sight. Give us the faith to follow you until that time. Based on these truths, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.